Good morning, Grace. You turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 14 is where we're going to be. just want to look at our live stream right now, right in the lens, and just say, Litsaw family, we miss you here. I know that quarantine period is slowly coming to an end. I can't remember how many more weeks. Anyone know how many more weeks until there? Five more weeks. Hang in there. We're praying for you. Wish you were here in person, but I'm glad you guys can be watching. Um, Again, I, I think every week when we sing about that we're admonishing one another with songs and hymns and spiritual songs. Um, And when I think about some of the songs Walt has us singing this morning in light of our passage in Luke 14, uh, one of the things that we're doing in those songs is we're we're reminding one another how humble people are supposed to think because we're not humble. We're reminding one another, yet not I, (laughs) yet not I. It's but Christ in me. That new song that, that we learned this morning, May I Never boast in anything except the cross of Jesus Christ. I need to sing that. I need you to sing that to me. We need to sing that to one another because we constantly boast in all sorts of things in ourselves other than the cross of Christ, don't we? That C.S. Lewis quote, Walt, is powerful and it's hard to read. I want to read one little part of it again so that we didn't miss it. I think Lewis knows our, our, our sinful human hearts when he says the natural life in each of us is something self-centered, something that wants to be petted and admired, something that wants to take advantage of other lives, use other people as a commodity to boost our, myself up, and that's just gross. <laughs> There's not another word for it. That's what this passage is going to be about here this morning Which is more astounding? Listen to these two things. That we can consider ourselves more important than the most important being in the universe. Or that the most important being in the universe has humbled himself the lowest. Those two things are profound. The first one is profoundly irrational that I can consider myself more important than my creator. The other one is amazingly good, that my creator has humbled himself to the very lowest point. This morning, we're going to be thinking about the inward desire to be important. We all have it. I have it. The the desire inside to be impressive, to be admired, to be elevated, to be exalted. It's the very heart of our sinful nature. I was reminded this week, a few years ago, a couple years ago, I think at a Good Friday service, Eric uh, Thomas uh, read as he preached on Good Friday this article called 17 Minutes by uh, an author named uh, Andre, Andre Seyu. I don't know how to say her name, but I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I want to encourage you to look it up later. Go Google 17 Minutes. A-N-D-R-E-E-S-E-U is her name. But the, the little essay begins like this. She says, these are the thoughts of a woman driving home from the stop and shop on an ordinary day. And then it's like this very honest litany of just all the thoughts running through her mind prompted by the things that she sees as she's driving and the things going on in her life and it's just one self-absorbed self-righteous self-justifying self-seeking thought after another just in a barrage and then the essay ends and she writes if you were to ask the lady as she rustles parcels from the car what she's been thinking about on the drive from town she'd probably say oh nothing in particular and she wouldn't be lying And she ends saying, imagine believing that we don't need a savior. 
I remember when I was standing back in the booth that service, I remember as Eric read, was reading it, the image that was in my mind was the electricity meter on the outside of our house with that little spinning thing that's just constantly um, uh, calculating the energy consumption of our house. And I thought, if I had a pride meter, it, 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 I, I don't even realize it's just constantly running, even behind the scenes when I'm not even aware of it. Pride runs so deep. But the good news is that Jesus wants to help set us free from that. He wants to unbind us from our pride and show us the joy of humility, of being in the lowest place that we're not naturally inclined to be. So as we're here, I'm about to read our passage. Two images from Luke 13 I, I want us to carry into this passage. One is last week, the mother hen. That's Jesus' desire, longing to, to gather us in and the chicks that are unwilling to be gathered. But the other image is the vine dresser and that unfruitful fig tree from the parable. And Jesus, the vine dresser, still digging and, and watering and fertilizing around the roots looking for fruit. Because here in chapter 14, uh, the vine dresser's been invited to dine with a bunch of unfruitful fig trees, and he's here. He's accepted the invitation, and he's here looking for fruit. We're going to see Jesus is looking and, and watching them here to see if there are signs uh, of, of good things growing. So let's read it. Luke chapter 14, this whole sort of scene, this meal with the Pharisees is going to extend into next week with Rob preaching, but here's the first ha part of this meal. Uh, I, I brought these up for a reason. <laughs> One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. That's not a Beatrix Potter character, by the way. It's, uh, we'll, we'll talk about that. But uh, Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. And then he took him and he healed him and he sent him away. And he said to them, which of you, having a son or an ox that's fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, would not immediately pull him out? And they couldn't reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him, and he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He also said to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, don't invite your friends or brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Let me pray. Uh, Lord, help us this morning uh, 
as we as we listen to your word and we and we consider ourselves um, in, in light of these men at this meal um, to abide in you this morning and that in abiding in you looking at you we would bear much fruit we pray this in Jesus name amen so the question I I've been asking this quite, his passage is, what is Jesus looking for here at this meal? What's the vine dresser looking for? What kind of fruit is he on the lookout for? And we have sort of three sections here. And in each section, uh, there's something specific I think he's looking for. In the first section, I would say, Jesus is looking for fruit of repentance. Or to use the word from the passage Randy preached last week, he's looking for willingness. Right? He wants to gather them in, and they were unwilling. And he's looking for willingness but unfortunately, sadly, what he sees is their silence. That's the key, that's the major response we see from them twice in this passage, silence. Which is really just a sign of stubborn unrepentance, isn't it? So think what's been happening. Jesus continues to, to heal in their presence and he continues to lovingly point out for them that they've missed the very heart of God's law which is boiled down to love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself, and they've missed that. And he does it again right here at this Sabbath meal, healing this man and calling them out with these questions, and he's looking for them to surrender like the mother hen. Walk through the scene. Look at verses 1 and 2. This whole scene smells of a setup, doesn't it? This is the third time Jesus has been invited to dine with Pharisees in the Gospel of Luke. It's the last time in the Gospel of Luke that we're going to see Jesus having table fellowship like this with Pharisees. Um, But not only is he dining with Pharisees, but this meal now, this time, is on the Sabbath. And it doesn't seem to be a coincidence because verse 2 says they were watching him carefully. And we, we know they're not watching him carefully because they're really interested in what he has to teach, right? The last meal with Pharisees is the one that Scott preached where he was pronouncing woes on them and it ended with them going away from there, lying in wait to catch him in something he might say. So I think that we're supposed to understand that's what this meal is about. That's why Jesus has been invited here. That's what they're watching him for is to see him um, step, up, uh, step out of line in a way that they can get him for, right? And finally then, behold, there's a man here, this meal on the Sabbath, who had dropsy, which isn't a disease, it's a symptom of a disease. I I didn't know, I always, honestly, I heard dropsy and I always think of flopsy, mopsy, and cottontail, but it's it's edema, it's swelling. This man was very visibly sick. The, the, The fluid in his body was swelling into his joints and tissues, most likely because of heart disease or internal organ failure. So he's dying and he obviously shows it in his body. He's literally drowning in his own fluid. He's not the sort of person you'd expect on this list based on later in the passage, the kind of people Jesus points out were invited, right? So he stands out. So Jesus gets it. It's a setup. And he knows, they know he's healed on the Sabbath before. They want him to indict himself as a Sabbath breaker, but it doesn't matter. Jesus is going to heal him anyway. He has compassion. But he starts and he questions him. He says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And they're silent. I was thinking, maybe they're silent just because either way they answer doesn't make them look good, right? Maybe they don't want to answer either way. Maybe at this point with the first question, they don't want to answer because they just want to see what he's going to do, right? They're hoping he's going to step out of line so that they can catch him. 
But he heals the man, presumably not just making his swelling go away, but healing the sick heart or the sick internal organ that was causing the swelling. And he sends this man healed on his way. And before they can sort of aha, he preempts any accusations that might come, like what happened at the synagogue before with the, the woman who was bent over. And he asks him another question. And he says, which of you having a son or an ox that's fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? I mean, it's obvious. Of, co- of course they would, right? The, the word immediately is the important word here. Of course they would. That's where their double standard is exposed. See, remember, I think Rob mentioned that around Sabbath, there was a law about keeping Sabbath, but the Pharisees had added all these additional traditions and additional rules to govern the way you keep Sabbath to make extra sure you don't violate it. But they'd gone so far overboard, right, that that all these traditions made Sabbath unwieldy and actually the most uh, uh, difficult law to keep, to rest, right? And the way their traditions reasoned were like this— Can an action be postponed until after Sabbath? Is it necessary or not? If it can wait, then wait. If it absolutely can't wait, then okay, you can can do it on the Sabbath. And that's right where Jesus strikes with them because he says, if any of you had a son or an ox who fell into a well and is struggling to get out, drowning in water, you wouldn't say, hang on, it's almost sundown. (laughs) Just wait till Sabbath, son you would immediately grab him out and rescue him, deliver him from dying, right? And here's this man in their midst drowning in his own fluid, so to speak. I mean, he's dying. It's, maybe it's not imminent, but the, the, the heart of Sabbath would say, of course, why would you not immediately rescue this man and help him from his drowning? They're exposed as, as, as uncompassionate hypocrites. It says they could not reply to those things. Jesus has exposed their lack of compassion. They're hearing what Jesus is saying. They're seeing what Jesus is exposing, but they're unwilling to admit he's right and repent. Their silence was actually saying something. Their silence was saying no. So we're going to pause here a number of times in this passage and need to ask ourselves, what does Jesus see in me? Is this what Jesus is seeing in me? Is this what I see in me? Maybe, in the very first place, you're still standing outside the narrow door um, and you're resisting God, Jesus' call in the first place to repent and receive him as your Savior and your Lord. You, you've not, you're not in a relationship with him yet at all. You're like these Pharisees. You're still standing outside the door. You can't. You, and, and maybe you've been coming here and the Gospel of Luke has been convincing you that you can't argue with Jesus. <laughs> you don't, he, he's, he's smarter than you. He's wiser than you. He's right, but you still won't have him. I just want to remind you, all these parables that we've been studying together, all the images of the parables are piling up this one reminder that we're moving toward a time when that door is going to close, and today is the day uh, to let down your unwillingness. Admit it. You know, it's interesting, he, he, it says there, they could, uh, and they could not reply to these things. They actually could have replied to these things. They could have replied by saying, you're right, guilty, guilty, double standard, and, and then began to follow Jesus, but they didn't. 
And maybe that's you this morning. I want to ask you, what's holding you back? It's also possible, this might be many of us here, to have entered through the narrow door and you still struggle, I still struggle, with willing surrender to, to, um, to, to be willing uh, to run to Jesus in all things. You know, as a Christian, willing, we should know this. Willing repentance doesn't come immediately and all at once in the Christian life, right? As silly as it examples, it is, I was thinking of our dog Shiloh, who's a house dog, but um, he's not a whole house dog. Um, he has our back family room and kitchen area, and the two doors that lead out of there have little, you know, half uh, fence barriers. That's his section right there. He, he sheds, and we're like, we don't want his hair in, in every corner and every inch in every room of our house. And so we sort of keep him confined there to keep, you know, the rest of our house to ourselves. Um, that's fine for a dog in our house. It's not fine for Jesus in my heart. And we all do this in ways. We all, in some ways, say, Jesus, would you just stay in the following rooms, please? I'd rather you not look in there. I'd rather you not go in there. I'd rather you not clean in there. And we need to ask ourselves, to what in my life is Jesus speaking or what in my heart? Every Sunday as we're, we're, we're hearing the word, we should be, I should be asking, you should be asking, uh, what are you showing me, Jesus, and, then, and I'm giving you the silent treatment. And then we should speak up and, and say, Lord, uh, forgive me. Come on in. Help me. The fruit he's looking for is repentance. And you know, one more thought is that repent, the reminder that repentance is, is fruit. So in your heart, when it begins where you um, see and you're grieved by ways that you're resistant to Jesus... That's fruit. Maybe more accurately, it's blossoms. You know, the fruit trees in our backyard, what comes out first in the spring are blossoms on our citrus trees and our apple trees, but it's a sign that fruit is coming. Life, life is, is bursting out, and, and repentance in the heart is the first stage of fruit, and Jesus delights in blossoms. That's what he's looking for with these guys here at this lunch. That's what he's looking for with us. So let's pause here, 30 seconds to just bow and privately pray. Uh, Lord, what in my heart do you want me to see and be grieved by and repent of? Where am I giving you the silent treatment? Just talk with the Lord. Let's continue. So repentance is, is the first fruit that Jesus is always looking for. It's, it's the starter fruit, right, for, for anything. And maybe the fruit that he's going to look for in these next two sections is some of what you were just even asking the Lord to show you this morning. But the, number two, G Jesus is looking for the fruit of humility, verses 7 through 11. He's looking for signs of humility, but sadly, all he sees at this meal are signs of prideful self-promotion and, and self-exaltation. 
You know, Jesus' day, he lived in an honor-shame culture, and a meal like this, everybody knew which were the most important seats, which were the least important seats. They were very clearly delineated where the most honorable person should sit, where the least honorable person should sit, and everyone else in between. And they all were aware with one another of who, you know, filled each of those ranks. And Jesus noticed how they chose the places of honor. He saw them scrambling in to the meal, sort of elbowing each other for the best seats in the house. And it exposes self-exaltation, he says, self-promotion, an internal presumption of worthiness above other people and self-importance, which isn't the culture of the kingdom of God. I I think that's what's keeping the scribes and the Pharisees silent in the last scene is this desire to be seen as important, petted and admired, like Lewis said. And he noticed it. So we need to ask ourselves, what does Jesus notice in me? Where does he notice tells, signs, externally? He can see the heart, but what what, what does he notice? What do I notice in me that are tells that I have the same self-exalting heart? Maybe it hasn't kept you from entering the narrow door, but the sin of pride is so insidious in us, isn't it? It runs so deep and into so many things, it just doesn't die easily. But nothing escapes Jesus' notice. I'm thankful for Betsy, my wife, yesterday, making this amazing observation here in this passage. I wanted to to share it, give her full credit. She, She pointed out, in the same way that the guy with dropsy in this last little scene, his swollen body was a symptom and it told a story about his sick heart, Jesus notices the outward signs of our sick hearts. He sees our sick hearts too, but, but he also sees the outer manifestations of it. And she said, and just like the man with dropsy, Jesus doesn't want us to only treat the outer symptoms, but he wants to treat the heart. So for them, Jesus noticed it in how they chose their seats at a luncheon. For us, what are the tells? What are the giveaways of our internal impulse to exalt ourselves? Maybe no one else notices them but Jesus. Do I? The blossom of the fruit of of humility is repentance. That's where it starts. Humility starts with admitting that, recognizing those tells. What are our versions of scrambling for the, the, the seat of honor from day to day? And if we want humility to grow in us, it strikes me two things. We need to listen to what Jesus says here, but we also need to look at Jesus. So first, let's listen to what Jesus says in verses 8 through 11. He he teaches them and us here how to grow downward in humility, how to kill pride in the heart. Verse 11 is the truth we need to hear, that everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And the wedding feast illustration, the hypothetical scene that he describes, is supposed to help us feel that truth. Both sides of it. He wants us to feel what it will feel like, what what exalting yourself will lead to, what will that feel like, and what will humbling yourself lead to, and what will that feel like. And go, oh, which one, which way would I like to feel? So let me paraphrase the scene. He says, imagine a wedding banquet 
Uh, First is the bad example. Here's what not to do. Here's where exalting yourself will lead. Imagine yourself rushing into a wedding reception, quickly scanning all the the tables and all the seats and and who's there, assessing where the, the most honored place will be, where's the seat where most people will see you, and then they'll assume, wow, you must be pretty important, and making a beeline there, maybe elbowing people, and getting to that seat, sitting down, buttering your dinner roll that's on the plate, and looking around the room and kind of noticing who's noticing you. And as you're doing that, you feel a tap on the shoulder. And it's the host. He says, I'm sorry, you're You're sitting in the father of the bride's chair. Can you get up? And you have to put your, you've already eaten a bite of your roll. And now that's the father of the bride's roll. And you have to get up and walk all the way through the reception, you know, with all eyes on you. And he takes you to the last seat, the farthest table, the the chair that's not even facing the, the wedding couple. I mean, it's funny, but can you imagine how that would feel? Second, the good example, where will humbling yourself lead? Imagine yourself arriving at the reception, and it's just beautiful. And you think, this is an amazing party. Look at all the important people here. I can't believe I was invited. I don't deserve to be here. I'll just go sit in that chair at the back table with the bad view. And as you're looking around, waiting for others to start eating to take your cue that, okay, I can, I can dive in and, and eat my roll here, there's a tap on your shoulder, and it's the host. And he whispers, friend, friend, what are you doing down here? I want you up closer to me. I'm so glad you're here. Let's move up. Can we imagine how that would feel? Very different. Surprising. Who doesn't want to find themselves feeling that way, right? The key, though, is the hard attitude. So Jesus says, so then, if you humble yourself, you will be exalted. But, man, the sneakiness of our pride, the sneakiness of my pride, can immediately turn that second half into, oh, that's the strategy to be exalted. Right? (laughs) But the key, I think, as I've been thinking about it, the attitude is, I can't believe I was even invited. I don't deserve to be here. If that's the reason you, you take the lowest seat. And in, in my, my day-to-day life, I, in situations, I, I seek the lowest seat because I, I'm just always amazed. I don't believe, I can't believe I was invited. That's the hard attitude. Because there's a way of taking the lowest seat that's still trying to exalt ourselves in the eyes of others. I'm guilty of that more times than I can recount, and it's gross. But true humility, Jesus is showing us, is a spirit of unworthiness and lowliness. It grows out of recognizing how deeply dishonorable our sin is and admitting I don't deserve an invitation from Jesus to recline at his table in the kingdom of God, right? If we want to grow in true humility, we need to listen to Jesus. We need to hear that, heed the warning, and say, okay, I, I, want, I, want, I want to wait for the graciousness of Jesus as my host to say, friend, move up here. But it's going to grow even more, I think, powerfully in us, humility, if, when we look at Jesus, the more we look at Jesus. Because when we look at Jesus, we can see him here in this illustration in two ways, I think. We can see Jesus in the one who took the lowest seat, Right? No one more worthy of honor has ever humbled himself and taken a lower seat than Jesus. 
I mean, he is the epitome of the one who takes the lowest seat and then is invited to the highest place, right? God, we read it in Philippians 2, because he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, God has now exalted him to the very highest place, the place uh, under which every knee will bow, right? That is extraordinary humility. He didn't need to do that. So, that reminds us we can believe the promise. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus is the, the, the primary example of it, but also it just holds the beauty of that before us, the beauty of our creator humbling himself for me and my unworthiness ought to make me feel my lowness and at the same time enjoy his highness and his love for me. I think the second way looking at Jesus here can help us grow in humility is is looking at Jesus. Jesus is also the host in this scene. In this second scene, we see Jesus' grace in the surprising words of the host to people who don't believe they were, can't believe they were invited to the banquet in the first place and take the lowest seat when he says, friend, move up higher, right? I mean, that's that's the call of the gospel, right? Repent and believe and your sins will be forgiven and you will... Receive the Holy Spirit right now. That's, that's, that's God saying to us, I know you, you don't deserve to be here, but friend, come on in. And then friend, move up higher. We don't deserve to be at the banquet and Jesus says, friend, move up higher. It's amazing. And the cost of that invitation, the cost of the friend, move up higher was his blood shed on the cross for me and for you. So the question, how can, how can we look at that tremendous humility and that tremendous grace that invites us as unworthy and least and not be humbled? As we're looking at it, it seems impossible to simultaneously be looking at Jesus' humility and feeling proud and self-exalting in the heart. Now, we go back and forth between those all the time from moment to moment. So fixing our eyes and never losing sight of the humility and the grace of Jesus will make us humble. take 30 seconds here for private prayer let's just pause Lord where do you notice my impulse to exalt myself where am I overlooking it and confess it ask his forgiveness ask him to help you put your eyes on him his humility and grace One more little illustration here that I skipped over. I want to use it because it's been helpful for me to think this way of how looking at Jesus is going to keep me from being pride. It's going to kill my pride. I was thinking of the the verse 1 John 3, 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Now, we know John doesn't mean that Christians never sin. He doesn't even mean Christians rarely sin or sin in big ways. But he does mean that Christians uh, bear fruit, right? If there's zero fruit, that person is not, 
doesn't abide in Christ. But this verse also can work, I think, for in, in, in the life of a Christian as a prompt. And this is what I mean by that. Um, whenever I'm sinning, when I, whenever I'm aware of my sinning, in this case, pride and exalting myself, it's telling me something in that moment. When I, when I see it, if I see it, it reminds me, oh, I must not be abiding in Christ because those can't happen simultaneously. I can't be looking up at Christ and looking down on others at the same moment, right? I was thinking of my Apple Watch. I have the cheap kind. Well, they're, none of them are cheap. I guess I have the cheaper kind that has to connect through my phone. And I do this constantly. I leave my phone behind and I'll drive over to church and all of a sudden, you know, my office and it'll pop up this green alert on my thing and it'll say, oh, you're disconnected. And it'll show me on a map where I last left my phone so that I can go drive back, get it, and reconnect. Now, this is an illustration of our union in Christ. Our union in Christ, we don't go in and out of Christ moment by moment if we're sinning or not sinning. But I think it is an illustration of our communion with him are abiding with him. Whenever I see ugly pride in my heart and Jesus mercifully shows it to me, it's expressed outwardly in humble bragging or putting someone down or putting myself first or brushing someone off because I don't feel they're worth my time or when I just am aware internally of looking down on others or a judgmental and critical spirit in a meeting, patting myself on the back. Each one of those things, 1 John 3, 6 is saying, is like an alert. It's saying you're, you're disconnected in some way from looking at Jesus because you can't look up at Jesus and look down on people like that. And so the solution is looking back up to Jesus and saying, Lord, help me not stop looking up at you as I look at others. That's how humility grows. All right, Move, last thing. What other fruit is Jesus looking for? These last three verses, Jesus is looking for the fruit of hospitality or uh, free generosity, selfless giving. And that's not what he sees in these guys. He sees uh, the, the opposite in them, self-serving transactional relationships. Luke doesn't give us a similar statement about what Jesus noticed, but it's clear from what he says to the host at this meal what kind of a crowd he had invited. It was just all the other people of equal status to him, probably people who were more important with him, from him, and he was ho hoping that down the road, I'm going to get an invitation to something even better than what I just threw, right? And he starts again with what not to do. Verse 12, when you give a dinner or a banquet, don't just invite your friends or brothers or relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. Obviously, that's what Jesus saw. That's the kind of meal he had been invited to. Now, he's not saying don't ever invite your family or friends over. <laughs> don't ever. Jesus ate with family and friends. The Last Supper, he didn't invite a bunch of the lame and the poor and the crippled and blind. He had this special meal that night. He's not a hypocrite for doing that. What's his point? His point is, don't merely operate this way. Is that primarily the relationships you seek out? The key words are when you give and repay, right? The host who gives the banquet appears generous, but if it's always motivated by the expectation and hope of repayment and reciprocation, maybe even getting more than he gave, it's not really generosity. It's, it's not really serving. It, it's self-serving. Only giving and serving from others that I expect to get something back from, at least as much as I invested, isn't the culture of the kingdom of God, Jesus is saying. So what to do, he says, verses 13 and 14. 
When you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Again, the key words are when you give and repaid. What's motivating the giving? From where are you hoping to be repaid? In this case, the good case, the repayment isn't expected from the ones to whom you give, but from the Lord who sees the, the, the generous heart that he put there, <laughs> that he planted there. He delights in it, and he repays on the last day. In this case, the repayment is expected from the Lord, not from the one to whom you give, and that's the culture of the kingdom of God, Jesus is saying. So one more time, let's ask ourselves: is this what Jesus sees in me? When I give, where am I primarily expecting to be repaid from? In a given week, uh, what motivates me to give of my time, give of my resources, give of myself to others? Am I looking for what will I get out of this, or what will you get out of this? What can I give in this? Is my default giving my time and resources to people I expect will return the favor or even worse, sort of ingratiating my people, my, myself to the kind of people that it's, it, it's good to be known by? Uh, are there people I consider not worth my time? Or do I avoid those I perceive are going to be a one-way drain on me? I thought of that question and I thought, it should occur to me that there are people who see me as a one-way drain. <laughs> if we want true hospitality to grow in us, it starts with these kinds of questions and saying, Jesus, is this what you see in me? Is this what I see in me? And then we need to look to Jesus. We need to listen to him and look to him and we need to see it in him as well because we see Jesus in this host too. Jesus is the good example host here. Jesus is the one who invites the poor and the lame and the crippled and the blind, the, the ones who absolutely cannot repay them to bless them and heal them and make them whole. They can never repay him for what he's done and that's all of us, by the way. We're supposed to realize that's where we are in that illustration. We're the poor, we're the crippled, we're the blind, we're the lame and we're the ones who don't deserve the invitation and he's invited us and he's served us in the way that we couldn't have served ourselves. You know, as we finish, I just wanted to give a... Um, just a word of honoring our food bank ministry and, a, and, a point, and to point us toward it. Um, it really hit me this week. The vision of the food bank ministry is exactly what Jesus says in verses 13 and 14. Every week on our campus, starting on Monday all the way building to Friday, a team of volunteers does pickups and unloading and sorting and arranging and prepping and bagging up and then coming on Friday uh, to meet and greet and invite a whole bunch of people that can never repay and give them, send them home with a feast in the form of groceries for their week. No repayment, except for we, we pray with them as they go. The whole point is not just to meet needs and, and give in a way that it can only be repaid ultimately one day by G Jesus on the last day, but to be a reflection of the grace of our Savior Jesus who has given to all of us like that who could never repay him. It's a great ministry. And maybe even this week, as you're thinking, as you keep thinking on this passage and the Lord keeps using it, maybe just a very practical way you might want to put this into practice is finding a way to get involved in some way, even if it's not just weekly, with our food bank. They'd love for you to, to have you through the week or uh, on a Friday. You can contact the office to find out specific ways to do that. But 
as we're done here, let's, here's our final last like, prayer pause. And then Walt's going to lead us in a, in a final hymn. Let's bow here. The specific pr- prayer prompt is, Lord, where am I giving only to be repaid? Who are you calling me to welcome and give to like Christ has welcomed and given to me? And then take a moment and, and thank Jesus for his humility, his love, and his grace that he humbled himself for you and thank him for it and rest in it, look at it in private prayer. And then we'll close with a song.